Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and the host for the Capitol Beach. I am incredibly excited to host today's podcast. This may be one of the podcasts I'm most excited to host uh, because it's on an issue that I've worked a lot on in the past couple of years, the Water Resources Development Act. And it's with a guest who I consider frankly, one of the most influential people in water policy that no one outside the belt, outside the DC Beltway has has heard of. Um, Ryan Seeger, who is the staff director for the Water Resources and Environment Subcommittee for Transportation and Infrastructure. Ryan, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Derek, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Um, really looking forward to our conversation. First, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Okay, Ryan, let's uh, let's dig right into this. I'm really excited to have you on the show. We've worked together for a number of years. You've been working on WERDA for, well, I don't want to date you, but a, a, a number of years now. Um, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. How did you get involved in water policy? When did you start working on Congress? And then maybe tell us a bit about what it means to be the staff director for the Water Resources and Environment Subcommittee on Transportation and Infrastructure, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Sure. Yes, absolutely. It goes to the back end of the business card. Um, so I actually got my start in Capitol Hill almost right after um, graduating from, from college. Um, always interested in politics. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, that's kind of how I got my entry into Capitol Hill, working for a member from my home city of Philadelphia. Um, and I think the way it worked is, you know, my portfolio started with kind of energy and the, and the environment. I had the opportunity to leave the Hill to um, to go to law school, but then got invited to come back to the Hill to work for the Water Resources Subcommittee back in, gosh, 1998, um, and basically have been there ever since. And so I think it was a nice fit between kind of my legal background, my kind of love of politics, and then obviously kind of, you know, learned a lot of my uh, – my technical experience in terms of energy environment on the job. And, and I've been uh, with the committee for over 20 years now. So, um, so it's been a, been an interesting ride, so to speak. Um, terrific. And, and as staff director for the, the subcommittee, you work, I guess, directly for the committee chair, but also work really closely with the subcommittee chair. How does that dynamic play out? Sure. Um, so obviously, um, I am um, the employee of, of the chairman or or the ranking member, so the head Democrat of the sure. Transportation Committee. Um, and so, in that capacity, um, you know, I'm I'm obviously you know, employed by him. Um, so committee staff are intended to be kind of the institutional knowledge of kind of the, the Congress. Um, I think the difference between, say, a, a personal office staff is somebody who's a lot more in tune with kind of the congressional district, um, whereas committee staff tend to take a kind of a, a more of an institutional role in terms of kind of what the Congress has done before in certain areas and kind of, you know, where it's going. So I think we're intended to be 
obviously at the employee of the kind of the chief Democrat, but I think our, our portfolio tends to involve um, basically the entire caucus and actually the entire House. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in the majority or in the minority of the House, I think it's your responsibility to kind of represent uh, competing views and not just the views of, say, just one member. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the enjoyment and sometimes the challenges of kind of being staff director is to try and balance kind of those competing views. I've, I've been in situations where uh, my ranking member of the full committee and my ranking member of the subcommittee were on opposite views of certain um, policy issues. And, and you have to try and represent both as best you can. Yeah, that's really interesting. I find the, the committee staff to be such an interesting position on Capitol Hill because of exactly what you said. You are both representing uh, different interests even within the Hill. Um, you're also trying to drive policy forward, but you're also having to play the, the small p politics of making sure people can come together to actually agree to legislation. Um, you know, we could probably have a whole episode about what it means to be a committee staffer, but uh, we don't have time for that. We're going to talk about uh, one specific piece of legislation, and that is the Water Resources Development Act. Um, for uh, regular listeners, you probably heard me talk about WERDA uh, pretty re- pretty often. Um, but for those that may be new or just jumping in, the Water Resources Development Act is the legislation that Congress puts out um, that authorizes uh, Army Corps of Engineer projects on water. Uh, it sets Army Corps of Engineer policy um, and really deals with many different issues of water, both coastal, inland navigation uh, in the U.S. It has both historically and recently been a a bill that passes every two years or once every Congress, although there was certainly a a gap in that. Um, Ryan, you said you started the the committee in 98. Uh, So how many how many words have you worked on? Because I know there was sort of a a period there where it wasn't happening all the time. And recently, it's been a bit more regular. Exactly. Yeah. So I I unfortunately was there during some of those interregnum years where there was a seven year break between some of our words. I think Word of 2020 is now the sixth Word of Bill I've worked directly on and I've, and the seventh why I've been with the subcommittee. So starting with Word of 2000 was probably the first one I got my hands kind of um, involved in. And in Word of 07, um, so obviously after a seven-year break, that was the first one where I was the lead um, Democratic um, negotiator on that bill. And so since basically Word of 07, so seven 14, 16, 18, and now 20, um, you know, there are bills that I have, you know, kind of directly been involved with kind of, you know, day-to-day drafting of these legislation. So, so they're all interesting. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And I, you know, I probably should have even given a shout out before we mentioned uh, your boss, uh, the ranking member, uh, Peter DeFazio from Oregon, who was ASBPA's coastal advocate this year, you know, longtime champ uh, for coastal issues, longtime advocate for getting word is passed on a regular cycle. And I think, you know, him at the helm of the Democratic uh, committee, you at the helm of the staff, I think have really helped drive that process to to make it more regular. So um thrilled about that. Okay, let's dig into a little bit of what is included in, in WERDA and specifically this year. I know every WERDA is probably special in its own right. And maybe you can't choose amongst your children, but what do you what do you specifically like about about this year's WERDA? That's a, that's a great question. I think, I think basically three things. I think one, um, this is obviously, you know, we're in a middle of a kind of a global pandemic. So I think, you know, the situation, literally we went into um, kind of, you know, 
socially distant quarantining almost immediately after we had asked kind of the entire house for their project request for Worda. So literally from the day we got our first kind of ask for Worda, um, we have been working remotely or kind of, you know, as much as, as we possibly can. So the situation of how this bill was developed is unique to any other bill. In fact, most of it was done um, from everyone's individual houses. And so we did most of the drafting, negotiating, um, kind of consensus building remotely. So that was a unique challenge that I don't think any of us ever prepared for. So that definitely is one notable um, difference. I think two, um, the policy changes that were in this word bill. I mean, I've worked on a lot of word bills and some of them have been um, monumental for a lot of different reasons. I would say in this one, some of the policy accomplishments in this word bill, whether they be related to harbor maintenance issues, whether they be related to resiliency or um, affordability concerns, whether related to kind of accomplishing something we started back in word 07 on implementation of new planning requirements for the core to make sure they balance out um, environmental, economic, and social benefits of future projects. Um, a bigger look into environmental justice issues. I mean, some of the policy goals that we were able to accomplish in this word are, are significant in terms of um, the core is a big ship. Um, you know, it takes a while to steer it in certain directions. And so hopefully uh, a lot of the policy accomplishments in this word will help kind of move the core in a more resilient, a more um, reflective of kind of affordability issues. Um, you know, and obviously from, from my boss's Chairman DeFazio's view, um, the harbor maintenance changes were a uh, long time in coming. I think he talked about it being something he'd been working on since the mid 80s. And then lastly, um, kind of the way the bill passed, um, you know, every word is different. You know, obviously you work on as much bipartisan, bicameral support as you can. But the fact that this word passed the House twice by basically unanimous consent, um, that is significant. Uh, it's kind of an inside funny story. Um, when working under Chairman Bud Schuster, excuse me, Bill Schuster, um, one of the questions he asked after we got off the floor, I think it was Word of 16, was he asked his staff to kind of go back and figure out kind of how his vote tally was compared to his father, who was also chairman of TNI and, and who had a better vote tally. And ultimately, um, Bill Schuster, the son, had a better vote tally in terms of fewer dissenting votes than his father did. And so that was an accomplishment. So, you know, you know, as, 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 as much as that was a great accomplishment, I think unanimous consent it even sets the bar even a little bit higher. So. So they're all, all great in their own different ways. Cool. So we got the three points. This is the first word that was primarily written in pajama pants. Uh, we've got a lot of <laughs> policy changes. And then we've got uh, the House passing it unanimously twice, which um, this also felt much more touch and go for a bill that had 100% of members of Congress voting for it. So uh, we'll, we'll maybe get to that at the end, but I want to dig into the policy. Um, not something I worked on so much, but uh, Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund is a huge piece of this bill, very important to a lot of coastal folks. Can you talk about what this bill does on Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund? Sure. I kind of simply put, um, you know, back in the mid 80s, um, Congress created a tax um, on shippers to basically share the cost of making sure that um, harbors are, are dredged to their kind of constructed widths and depths to make sure basically um, that commerce can move quickly in and out of, of America's harbors and that shippers, obviously, both from an import and export side, um, kind of have free flow of, of goods in and out of the country. Um for many years, um, we collected uh, that 
fee, that user fee, that tax, um, but didn't use it. And I think the challenge that we've always had is as the uh, balance in the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund was continuing to accrue to a point where I think in the last presidential budget, um, the estimate was there was about $10 billion of previously collected money just sitting in the trust fund unused. Um, most of our harbors, whether they be the biggest harbors from kind of the port of Los Angeles or Seattle or New York to the smaller harbors, um, the ones that are really important to kind of local economies, fishing fleets, you know, safety issues for for fishermen in terms of their ability to get kind of back in harbors in in in, in storms and in, in coastal um, impacts. Um, they they were either under not dredged or not dredged to their full capacity. So you had this kind of disparity of you have this money, you're sitting in a trust fund, collect it for an intended purpose, and it was not being used for that. And I think, you know, Chairman DeFazio um, represents kind of the coastal Oregon area, and his coastline is dotted with a lot of mid and small harbors that were constantly being passed over for funding. The chairman of the of the subcommittee, Grace Napolitano, um, represents kind of the Los Angeles area, and obviously, you know, LA port being one of the biggest in the country in terms of movement of, of goods and services. You know, we had the ability to talk to kind of both sides in terms of we have this backlog of needs, we have this balance in the trust fund of collected money that's not being used for its intended purposes. It was a common sense argument of being able to basically unlock the amount of money that was being used to do the kind of the coastal maintenance. But, you know, there are, you know, budgetary mechanisms. There are other reasons why people were recalcitrant to do this. But fortunately, I think in this situation, eventually everyone started to recognize that this was an unmet need with money that was already being collected. And I think ultimately the consensus was it didn't make any sense not to do this. And I think it's something that, you know, it was something that, Benefited big ports, small ports, um, you know, contractors, um, you know, the economies that rely so heavily on kind of goods and services that move through these ports. Ultimately, it, it became such an overwhelming support for doing this that we were able to overcome some of the institutional objections to this and finally get this done. So that's a huge accomplishment, something that people were working on, like I said, for almost 20, 30 years now. That's great. Uh, again, not something I work on, but it, it does seem to just sort of make sense. You are the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and you actually have funding to pay for transportation and infrastructure. So it seems logical that you should just spend that existing money. You don't have to raise taxes. You don't have to create new fees. It's there. You just need to put it towards its appropriate use. So um, Exactly. Uh, yeah, great. Glad to see that um, move forward. And I know it's something you and the chairman have been working on, as you said, for, for decades now. Um, Okay, let's let's pivot a little bit to some some of the stuff more coastal. Well, I guess that is certainly coastal, but more coastal restoration oriented. Um, there is a, a whole suite of sections in here on coastal resilience and a number of provisions, uh, specifically around natural infrastructure, the sort of softened shorelines and softened um, coastlines, beaches, dunes, wetlands, uh, and sort of trying to prioritize them over your more hard infrastructure. Not require them necessarily, but at least prioritize them. Um, I guess I'll sort of throw it to you. Are there any sections in specific you'd like to discuss around coastal resilience? Or do you want to talk more broadly about what this does include for, for coastal resilience and natural infrastructure? I think it's definitely talk about more more broadly. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned before that the core is a big ship, and it kind of is you know it takes a long time to kind of steer the ship towards kind of new approaches. But I think the core itself has um, specific 
um, offices. One that comes to mind is kind of the, the Engineering Research Design Center down in Vicksburg. Um, they are tip of the spear when it comes to um, looking at kind of newer, more efficient, um, kind of resilient ways of, of, of addressing kind of future core projects. And we had the fortunate opportunity to go and tour their facility a few years ago and to see the work that they're doing in terms of kind of as you said before, uh, moving away towards kind of the traditional gray, hard infrastructure of just trying to see how big of a levy I can build to more of a um, how can we mimic some of the natural processes or nature-based solutions and provide the same or maybe even better level of flood protection um, at the same time of providing additional benefits of restoring floodplains, creating you know access points for recreation, um, trying to do things in a more nature-based approach. I mean, the core is finding that, you know, as you said before, it's not a mandate, but it obviously is there are different ways of accomplishing the same goal. And sometimes um, the, the more natural nature-based solution is more resilient in the long term, um, causes less of a kind of a environmental, social, and um, economic impact in the short term. Um, is something that kind of can actually prevent flood losses or storm damage losses kind of in the short and long term because it it reduces things like wave action. So if you um, kind of restore a coastline with a more natural based approach, the hope would be that, you know, when storms do occur, when they impact a coastal community, um, it actually pulls some of the energy out of the kind of the wave action and hopefully reduces the likely impact on the kind of the coastal community. The hope is, is that, you know, communities are going to decide which approach works better for them. But one of the, uh, the concerns we've heard over the last few years is a lot of communities, they know the old way of doing things. You know, when they, when they have a flood protection problem, the first thing is, is, is how big of a levee can you build me? How big of a, you know, a flood control structure can you, can you build me? And I think as, the science as the engineering is showing that these natural and nature-based solutions may be more cost-effective in the long run. It is our hope through some of the changes we've done in WERDA is that the core itself can kind of inform the community of some of these options that maybe they didn't even know about and say, perhaps this would be a better approach for you. And I think as you're starting to see more communities come to the realization that these these kind of engineering alternatives exist, you're starting to see a lot of communities kind of reflect on them and say, perhaps this is a better way of, of moving forward in terms of dealing with our long-term flood needs. It's not even just a coastal issue. I mean, you know, the last few years, we've had significant amount of inland flooding, mm-hmm. um, Mississippi River, Missouri River, um, kind of overtopping their banks. And I think even in areas that are more riverine in nature, they're realizing the more you constrain a river system, the likelihood is while your community may survive the pulse, um, the community downstream of you now has to deal with a bigger pulse of water that has now moved into their backyard. So by allowing, you know, post Katrina, one of the things we learned is, is, you know, the, the, the Dutch were working towards this concept of room for the river, um, allowing the floodplains to actually act as floodplains and let the water disperse upstream to, to kind of avoid just pushing it downstream. I think a lot of communities, both inland and coastal are, are realizing that that, that's a, a, a valid approach to test out. And, you know, if it works for them, great. But I think what we're doing in, in Word 2020 is trying to push that information out to communities and give them a full 
kind of array of options for them to, to choose from, whatever works for that. And if you are uh, keeping track of Warda at home as you listen, uh, it's, it's really starting on section 113 to about 116. There's a whole suite of different natural and nature-based alternative policies getting the core to um, at least consider natural and nature-based features. As you said, sometimes sometimes it's not going to be the right solution, but more and more we're seeing that it is, uh, particularly as you're looking at sea level rise. Nature-based features often have the ability to uh, adapt to sea level rise. Marshes can accrete and keep up. Obviously, levees are you know are going to be set to the height that they're built uh, initially. So um, some really good policies in there. Uh, one, I want to uh, take sort of moderator's prerogative to talk a little bit about the beneficial use of dredge material um, section, because this is something I was, I was pretty involved in and really pleased to see um, how it how it turned out. Uh, this is actually sort of a bunch of different pieces all pushed together in section 125. Um, I think really interestingly, you guys in, in opposition, or not in opposition, but as opposed to what the, the Senate did, you put this all in one section and you started the section by saying it is the policy of the United States for the Corps of Engineers to maximize the beneficial use in an environmentally acceptable manner of suitable dredge material obtained from construction uh, of water resource development projects. So yes, I did just read out text of legislation <laughs> on a podcast, um, but I think it's really interesting, right? You, normally you don't get such plain language. It is the policy of the Corps of Engineers to maximize the beneficial use of dredge material. Why did you guys feel it was important to sort of state that in legislative text? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, the, the history of kind of the beneficial reuse or use of the dredge material um, authority has been a couple of word is in running now. I think the first one was probably either in 14 or 16. Um, and I think the one interesting thing about this one is, is, again, this is one of those policies that is bipartisan, is bicameral. Um, you know, you have um, varied interests all recognizing the fact that, you know, the sediment that the core obtains from kind of dredging projects on one hand shouldn't just be disposed of, you know, kind of offshore in kind of a dredge disposal facility, but actually there are other projects that may be in a, in a nearby area that can benefit from having that sediment transported to their projects and do, you know, you know, ecosystem restoration projects or wetlands rebuilding or whatever the, or even shoreline restoration projects and, you know, whatever the project may be. And I think, you know, one of the challenges we always had to overcome is, is you know, a lot of times it, it's very inside baseball, very inside Washington, but, you know, the color of the money it being a construction project versus it being an O&M project created some difficulties. And I think the logic that we always took with beneficial reuse was that if you combine the projects and you consider the, 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 the dredging project and the construction using the dredge sediment project as one project, that the benefit of the combined project is better than the kind of the outcome of the projects viewed individually from one another. I, I think while that was the policy goal in 14 and 16, I think the difficulty is, is again, as we talked about before, a lot of times doing new things takes a little bit of time. And I think, you know, whether they were administrative, you know, small a, um, you know, you know, objections or just kind of, you know, you know, just lack of doing things in this way, um, it was difficult to kind of get the core to kind of do, retool the thinking in terms of kind of rethinking of beneficial projects as something they should move forward on. It's not for lack of, of desire. I think when the core put out its initial solicitation for beneficial use projects, you know, the original pilot was 10 projects and I think they got 90 plus applications. And so clearly there was a 
a need from the kind of the coastal and kind of the beneficial use community. Um, but obviously, you know, the, you know, they had to fit the 90 into the 10, they picked their 10. Um, but I still think that there were policy concerns, you know, institutional concerns, budgetary concerns. So rather than kind of fight around the edges on this, um, you know, I think the House position on this was, we know what the goal is. We know that the reason why we're doing this beneficial use project is to encourage to the maximum extent practicable beneficial use of sediment. And so the best way to get that is to state, as you said, unambiguously, that this is what the intent of Congress is. This is what we are saying to the core is what our national policy is, is when you can do beneficial use of sediment, you should do so. Obviously, there will be you know technical concerns, economic concerns, environmental concerns, kind of the traditional way the core develops projects. But in the end, if it's a yes or no, and the only thing that's kind of holding us back is you know budgetary or kind of policy concerns, we want an unambiguous statement that says that no, Congress is intending you to kind of run these things out and see how they work. I mean, we created, I think this is the third time we've now raised the number of pilot projects that we want to do through the beneficial use. You know, it is it is our intent that you know, we're going to run these things out and see if they do work the way we all think that they're going to work. And so now we're encouraging the core through a national policy statement that this is what Congress's intent would be. That's great. Yeah, we, we often talk about, you know, dredges do two things, right? They're it's pretty simple. They, they suck up dirt and sand and sediment, and then they spit it out somewhere else. And I think often the core has been sort of systematically set up so that the people who are in charge of, or, or the, the institutions that are in charge of getting rid of sand and getting rid of sediment are not necessarily the same people that are in charge of figuring out where sand needs to go. And so blending those uh, is just a, a very eminently sensible thing to do. This policy, as you said, also increased the beneficial use of dredge material pilot projects up to 35, included language um, encouraging uh, some of those to be what we call thin layer placement projects. So this is not just you're you know, dumping sand on a beach or rebuilding a, a barrier island, but thinking how we can distribute um, sand at, a, at a, a, a thin layer so it can help things like marshes accrete and keep pace with sea level rise, which I think is going to be increasingly an important policy that the core and, and communities are going to have to deal with. Um, one thing that uh, we worked on, and I was really pleased that made it into here, was uh, requiring the core to calculate the economic and environmental benefits um, of beneficial use when they consider the federal standard. So the federal standard essentially says, and, and Ryan, you can correct me if I'm misstating this, but uh, basically the core has to dispose of dredge material in the cheapest way possible that's environmentally friendly. Um, which makes sense, you know, you know, we don't want to waste taxpayer money, but we also want to be able to use that. And so if you're not fully calculating the potential value of that sediment, so if you're just thinking about, well, what's the cheapest thing we can do that doesn't harm the environment, rather than necessarily saying, let's, okay, what is the full value of that sediment? Where could that sediment actually be used? Um, you're, you're sort of not thinking about the full, the full value. And so I was pleased to see that, that be included. I, I sort of talked about that a bit, but any, any comments on that, Ryan, or anything to add to that? <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is a lot of times you have to think of these things as combined projects. And obviously, if you're looking at just as what is a dredging project and then what is the transportation cost of taking that dredged material to a different site and then what is the cost of actually placing it, if you look at them in siloed ways, you know, obviously you can find reasons not to do this. And I think one of the, the, the reasons for including kind of that bigger economic 
consideration is, is sediment itself has value. Um, it's not just kind of something to be disposed of. And so I think the way we encourage through this legislation is, is to think of that sediment as having value. I mean, you know, obviously if you're doing, as you said, a thin layer placement project, or even if you're doing kind of a coastal barrier project is one of the construction costs is obviously the, the acquisition of the materials to do the construction with. Um, so when you combine these two projects and you consider the sediment that's being pulled up in the dredging project as having inherent value, um, it should help in terms of kind of working out some of the, the benefit cost calculations. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, we try to encourage kind of this bigger economic calculation is, is there are costs involved in kind of obtaining and disposing of the sediment that can be avoided. And then there's obviously costs in acquiring sediment that also can be avoided when you combine these projects together. So one more policy realm that I want to talk about that was in this year's word, uh, you, you brought it up when you did your sort of quick overview, was some of the environmental justice concerns uh, that got raised and some of the way in which I think this helps, this word helps level the playing field for federal projects for um, uh, low and, and uh, low income and uh, underserved communities. Most core projects come with a cost share. Um, and even though the federal government is paying for a, a big chunk of that, there are, um, there are, you know, real funding uh, requirements for that local community. Um, but that means that often core projects can only be done in communities that can, can afford them. And, and this bill uh, went through on, on certain programs and removed that cost share or reduced, I believe, the cost share for low-income communities. Um, you want to talk anything about sort of where that came from, what that does, and any of the environmental justice considerations that were included in this bill? Sure. Uh, that actually, so the affordability angle was probably, you know, so we had multiple hearings on Word of this year. And and interesting enough, we had a hearing that was solely focused on kind of the resiliency kind of angle, as well as what we call a member day hearing, where we had the opportunity for members of the House to come and testify in front of the committee just on kind of kind of their word of concerns. A common theme at every word of hearing this year was the affordability angle in terms of the point you exactly made is that you know obviously there are communities that are that are, you know, fortunate with a kind of an economic standpoint that, that basically they can afford to build the projects themselves. And so there are obviously legislative angles where if a community wants to get ahead of the core in terms of contribute what would be the federal share in advance, there are opportunities for them to do that. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are definitely communities where a full-blown core project is just not something that's possible. And it's 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 not any one area of the country. Um, it can be you know, economically disadvantaged urban areas, it can be rural areas, it can be some of kind of the, the kind of the insular kind of, you know, territory areas that, you know, kind of the, the, they're, they're associated with the United States. You know, there are a lot of communities that have the same needs as big communities, um, whether they be flood, you know, protection issues, whether they be um, ecological, you know, environmental restoration issues, whether they even be navigation issues in terms of some of the small ports we talked before, but they don't have the means, the tax base um, to be able to do kind of the traditional, whether it be 35% or 50% or whatever the cost share is. So one of the things that we took a really hard look with is, is the core is a exceptional resource. They are the premier water resource agency in the country. They, they have, you know, hundreds of years of kind of technical expertise and kind of know-how. Um, 
they should be able to work with communities at whatever level they want to plug in. So whether it's kind of, as we said before, kind of the affluent communities is they want to partner with affluent communities and kind of do the kind of the, the big core project. That's great. If that works for you. That, that is, that is perfect. But if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you can't afford kind of even the cost share to do a study with the core, there are authorities in this word bill that says that perhaps the core can just provide you technical assistance. A lot of times really small communities or economically disadvantaged communities don't even have kind of the professional staff on the payroll to even understand what they could do, let alone actually accomplish it. So, you know, if, if your means allows you to just work with the core to kind of understand your local problem from a technical assistance standpoint, that's one lane where you can go. You mentioned the idea of, you know, can we waive cost share for kind of a feasibility study? There's a pilot program in here that says for 10 economically or disadvantaged or rural communities, you know, let's let the federal government pick up what would be the non-federal share and kind of run that concept. So in essence, the community gets a free study to kind of run out how, how that might work in terms of providing protection for them. There's a cost share adjustment for economically disadvantaged communities in kind of the continuing authorities programs, which is kind of the um, pre-authorized small nav, small environmental, small coastline, you know, you know, shoreline protection projects. Um, so if you know you're working on a small project and there's the ability for kind of cost share to be waived on those as well, I, I think the challenge we have is is the needs that are facing communities is is ubiquitous. Everybody has the same needs, but not everyone has the same means to participate. And so one of the things that we want to look at in this word is how can the core plug in with a community at whatever level, whatever, you know, economic, you know, capability they have is let the core use its expertise to help all these communities in whatever means is possible. And to the environmental justice side, uh, you know, that is a huge issue. Um, you know, it's something that obviously came up in the kind of the, the presidential campaign. Um, it's something that the kind of the incoming Biden administration is focused on. Um, the core's environmental justice policy has not been revised in years. Um, you know, uh, there are frictions that occur sometimes um, in, in terms of kind of, you know, the impact of, of, of you know, for disparate or for economically disadvantaged communities. Um, one of the things that this word tries to do is to try and say to the core is it, it, it's, it's a good idea for do you revise your uh, environmental justice policies to just be kind of cognizant of kind of how the core fits into kind of the bigger picture. So one of the things that this legislation does is it it tells the core, gives some direction is it's time for, you know, your 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 EJ policies to be revised. And you know hopefully the Biden administration will take that and run with that. All really good. I think one thing we hear a lot when we talk about climate adaptation is how it's going to be much easier for those with means, whether it's financial or political, to adapt to the challenges of climate change. Um, and I think making sure that major federal adaptation agencies such as the core, and, and I do think the core is an adaptation agency primarily, or, you know, partly, are helping those communities that don't have the means, the knowledge, the capacity to start doing that themselves. So I think all those are really important provisions. Um, we could spend all day on policies. There are so many good policies in here. We haven't even talked about any of the project authorizations, but I did want to talk about the um, the way the bill passed. Obviously, the bill passed. That's why we're talking about it. Uh, it was sort of an interesting story. As you mentioned, um, the bill passed the House unanimously twice, once sort of uh, late spring, early summer. Um, there were 
waiting on the Senate to move its bill. It passed a bill unanimously in committee, but didn't actually bring the bill to the floor of the Senate. And then I know sort of throughout the fall, you guys have been in discussions with the Senate to try to come up with one unified bill. The House and the Senate bill were similar, but not the same. And so trying to create a unified bill. Um, And then you guys passed the bill in December. And then uh, maybe you could tell us the story of of how it actually made its way onto the giant omnibus $900 billion COVID and FFY21 budget and actually sort of got attached onto that, what was it, 3,000 page bill or something to move forward. So Sure. So, so like you said, every word is unique and some of them um, tend to be at the traditional House pass, Senate pass, formal conference, um, you know, enact just a word of bill. And then, you know, there are other times where one chamber acts, the other chamber does not. And then you do, in essence, what's called a pre-conference where you, you negotiate the bills, even though they're not final, final texts. Um, Word 2020 kind of followed that model. Um, you mentioned the House did pass it, um, I think, twice um, before it eventually went up in the kind of the, the omnibus COVID relief package. Um, I think the reality is, is, you know, as we came to the end of the legislative session, um, there weren't a lot of bills moving through the Senate, um, you know, for one reason or another. I, I think, you know, there are we were we're not the only bill that actually carried through the omnibus. I believe there was an energy package. I know on our committee, um, there were several aviation and pipeline issues that also rode in the kind of the COVID package. So I think ultimately, while maybe it wasn't the preferred option, it, it worked. Um, unfortunately, the president signed the bill. So I think the end, it was over 5,000 pages in terms of I think I heard that it's the l- longest bill ever passed the House that was signed to law in the history of the House. Um, I don't know that for certain, but all I know is that we saw the stack of papers and it was significant in terms of how thick the final law was that was enrolled and sent to the president. Um, but you know, ultimately for us, you know, whatever means possible, so long as it passes both the House and Senate and signed a law, you know, we're fortunate that it was able to be accomplished. So yeah, and I got word up in front of me, it's about 360 some pages. So, you know, not a tiny little bill, but uh, certainly uh, a, a drop in the bucket for the, the broader well, well, One little thing that was kind of a, just a unique thing is, you know, obviously you know, Word of 14 created this authority to do, uh, for the court to try and get projects done in three years, um, $3 million, the three by three approach. Um, I think Word of 2020 is showing kind of fully how that is finally kind of hitting a stride. I think we realized that Word of 2020 authorized the same number of chief supports that were in the 14, 16, and maybe 18 bill combined. So obviously the ramp up in terms of completion of chief supports as a result of kind of the stuff we did back in 14 is finally hitting fruition. So just in terms of sheer number, the number of chief supports in Word 2020 is significant. That's great. Yeah, it's less... I don't want to say less study, but let's make the studies more efficient and get projects moving moving quicker. Um, I think is a really important thing. We're our coasts, our country, our climate is changing, and we need to be doing projects, not just studying them ad nauseum. So, um, congrats on that. Well, we are running out of time. We could spend all day talking about this. I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about sort of your role in all of this. Um, so, uh, but. Obviously, the Transportation Infrastructure Committee is critical to coastal policy, um, to water policy. Uh, so really glad to have you on. I will finish with the question I ask all my guests, which is, um, you know, we work hard every day trying to get uh, improve water policy for the nation or coastal policy. Um, and it, it's easy to get burnt out. And I feel like almost everyone has a special beach or coastal area that they go to be inspired. So um, 
you know, from Philadelphia, been in DC for a while. Where where do you go when you need to when you need to revive and recharge? Uh, what coastal area gets you going? So interesting. Um, so it's a kind of a funny story. So um, as a Philly kid, um, obviously the entire city transplants to the Jersey Shore um, every summer. So everyone has their favorite Jersey Shore town. Um, growing up for for me, it was probably the, kind of the Wildwood area when I was very young, and then probably the Barnegat Bay um, when I was probably in my my teen years. Um, for my wife, um, who's also from the Philly area, it was Ocean City, New Jersey. Um, and so now we have since we've gotten married. Um, Spent every summer, except for unfortunately this past one, um, at the at the Jersey Shore, and my kids who grew up their entire lives in Virginia um, now don't think of a summer as actually happen- having occurred until they get a chance to kind of walk the boards in Ocean City and go spend some time at the beach. So I have two Virginia sons who um, feel that if they don't get to the Jersey Shore for at least one week every summer, that they have not actually accomplished their summer goals. So so that's my kind of safe spot. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, uh, glad to have a, a Jersey Shore kid on the uh, and, and a couple of <laughs> Jersey Shore dad now, I guess, on the on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ryan. I wish you the best of luck in whatever comes next. Uh, we got an exciting year coming up with with the new administration, coastal being more of a priority, um, and I know you'll be part of it in one way or the other. So, thank you so much for joining Derek. us. Have a great day. Derek, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. 